You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. And as you're doing that, if you'd please open with me in your Bibles to the Book of Acts. This morning we are going to be in Acts chapter 27. So if you want to turn there, you can uh, follow along as we study this morning. Uh, We have been going through a study here on Sunday mornings uh, called Revolution, which we are now coming to the end of. We've been studying through the book of Acts and looking at the history of earliest Christianity as Jesus' disciples took the message of the gospel, this message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, and they took it out into the world. Uh, Next Sunday, we're going to be in our very last part of this study. We're going to be starting a new series called The Pursuit of Happiness the next week, which will be a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. So be on the lookout for that. You know, the saying goes that all roads lead to Rome. And in the Roman Empire, that was uh, literally true. In the Forum, in, which was in Rome, that which is the main square, was the central plaza there in Rome, there stood an object which was called the Golden Milestone. And from that Golden Milestone began all the roads which led from Uh, Rome to every corner of the empire and the mile markers throughout the Roman Empire all measured the distance from wherever they were back to the golden milestone in the forum in Rome. So all the roads literally did lead to Rome which at this time was the center of the world in every uh, way of thinking. At the time of Jesus Rome was easily the largest city in the world by far. It was over a million people at that time. And try to imagine a city of a million people that doesn't have skyscrapers, that doesn't have, you know, big apartment buildings. I mean, this was a sprawling metropolis. Rome was also the political capital of the world. It was the cultural capital of the world at that time. And so you can imagine why someone like Paul the apostle, uh, the great 1st century evangelist, the missionary apostle, why he would have wanted so badly to go to Rome. And he writes about that desire to go to Rome uh, several times in his letters. Because Paul had a vision. His, his vision was this, that if there could be a strong, healthy, vibrant church in Rome that had a missionary passion, that was burning with this kind of passion, then from Rome they could go out and they could take that gospel of the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, they could take it to the, to the ends of the earth, to the entire world. And so at the end of the book of Acts, Paul's dream is finally coming true. Here where we pick up the story. He is on his way to Rome, and he has managed to get an all-expenses-paid trip. Sounds pretty nice, right? An all-expense-paid trip to the eternal city of Rome. You know, sailing through the Mediterranean on your way to the eternal city. How romantic does that sound? How many of you would love to do that? But the way that Paul got this all-expense-paid trip to Rome was through a very difficult process. It was through one that most of us wouldn't choose. Uh, He had been falsely accused of a crime, and when it came to trial, and, and it did become clear in the trial that he hadn't actually done anything wrong, the authorities still refused to release him. And they did this in order to gain political favor with the factions who didn't like Paul. And so Paul ended up being uh, kind of stuck in this weird situation where he's not guilty, but yet they're not releasing him. And so he played the one card that he had in his hand, and that was this. He appealed his case to Rome. And this was something that you could do at that time if you felt that you, you were the victim of injustice or a miscarriage of justice in the court system. And so Paul is now going to be transported to Rome. He's going to be transported as a prisoner in custody, and he's going to be transported to await his trial before Caesar. 
The title of today's message is Shipwrecked, which kind of tells you what's going to happen on this journey already. But as we go through this text, there are three important things that we're going to be looking at. First of all, we're going to be talking about jumping ship. Secondly, we're going to talk about why is this happening? Why, why do storms happen in our lives? And thirdly, we're going to be talking about the personal pronouns. So jumping ship, why is this happening, and the personal pronouns. Let's begin by talking about jumping ship, and we'll begin reading Acts 27, starting in verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramitum, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus. So here's Paul, he's being transported from Caesarea, which is where his trials took place, and he's being transported to Rome, and he's being transported along with some other prisoners who are also being taken to Rome. These other prisoners most likely were not going to Rome like Paul was to appeal their cases to Caesar. Most likely these were condemned criminals who were being taken to Rome to face death in the arenas. So at the time, the people of Rome, would, uh, they would gather like for sporting events in the arenas to watch convicted criminals fight to the death with gladiators, with each other, with wild beasts. And so the person in charge of them is a centurion named Julius. He's accompanying Paul, and Paul also has two close friends accompanying him on this journey. The first of these friends is named Aristarchus. And if that name sounds familiar, it should, because we've met this guy Aristarchus already two times in the book of Acts, and we're going to actually read his name in many of Paul's letters. Aristarchus was a friend and a traveling companion of Paul's. He was originally from Thessalonica, but he had come with Paul on that journey to Jerusalem a couple of years ago. And while Paul was arrested and in prison and going through this court system, Aristarchus had stuck with him and, you know, waited for him to get out, probably visiting him in prison. And now Paul's out of prison, Aristarchus gets on the boat with him and travels with him to Rome. I mean, talk about a faithful friend. But who was the other friend of Paul's who was on this boat with him? Do you know who it was? It was Luke. And how do we know that? Because again, Luke says, we got on the boat. We went on this way. This is the third of what are known as the we sections of the book of Acts, where Luke, the author, is writing his firsthand account because he was there. So Luke is also with Paul on this trip to Jerusalem. He had come with Paul to Jerusalem. He had stuck with him through his imprisonment. And now he's accompanying him to Rome. Let's continue in verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. This is interesting, right? Most likely they are on a merchant vessel right now. It's probably a grain ship heading to Rome, and they were able to come aboard the ship as passengers. And so they have to make a few stops. They're not just going directly to Rome, and this is the first of their many stops. Now, even though Paul was in custody, this Roman centurion apparently gave him quite a bit of freedom. I mean, he tells him, hey, you know, they come to this port. Why don't you just go off for the afternoon, go hang out with your friends? Now, I find that intriguing that Paul, as a prisoner, would have been given this kind of freedom. It tells me that there must have been something about Paul's character that this centurion could see in him, having just been around him for a short time, that that must have led him to say, okay, this is a trustworthy guy. I can let him go into town, and he's going to come back. He trusts that Paul's not going to escape or run off. I also find it interesting that Paul didn't try to use this opportunity to escape because he totally could have, 
right? I mean, like, if you're in prison and you ask the prison guards, hey, do you guys think I could go for a walk, like, to the store and maybe visit some friends for the afternoon? I'll totally come back. Like, how many prisoners are they going to let do that? Like, none, right? Nobody's going to let you do that because probably most prisoners won't come back. So Paul here, they say, yeah, yeah, go for a walk, go visit your friends. Paul has the perfect opportunity to escape and disappear forever, but he doesn't take it. Now you can imagine why that would be a temptation for someone in Paul's situation. He didn't actually do anything wrong. He's been a victim of injustice. He shouldn't be in this situation. And this is his golden opportunity to escape. Why not just take it? Maybe he could even justify it in his mind. Maybe God gave him this opportunity to escape. There's no FBI. There's no video surveillance. They're never going to catch him if he decides to disappear. But yet he doesn't do it. He goes, he visits his friends, and he comes right back to the ship, puts out his hands, and lets them put the handcuffs right back on him. Now, why would he do that? I'll tell you why. Here's why. Because Paul was absolutely convinced that even though this situation wasn't fair, even though it wasn't right, even though it was a bad situation, he was convinced that this was God's plan for him and for his life, and he wasn't willing to jump ship. Now, how about you? I wonder, have you ever been tempted to jump ship? on your marriage maybe, on your job, on some responsibility that you have. I want you to see this. Paul didn't jump ship because he believed that even though this situation wasn't easy and wasn't even fair, it was God's plan for his life to ride out this storm, to go to Rome, and to fulfill God's calling for his life. And so we read in verse 4, Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now let me ask you that. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that the winds are against you? That, that nothing seems to be working in your favor? And maybe you've thought, you know what? Nothing's working out. I should just jump ship. I should just bail out. I should just give in. After all, the winds are against me. Nothing's working in my favor. Why should I go on fighting against this? But yet again, that's not what Paul did, and it's probably not what you should do either. And we'll talk about this more as we continue through this section. Verse 5. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we arrived to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. And we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go any further, and we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which is near the city of Lycia. So they change ships, they get on another merchant ship heading to Italy now, and they come to this place called Fair Havens, which is actually, as we're going to see, a very misleading name. It's kind of like when you go to those, you know, some dumpy town out in the middle of nowhere, and it has the name like Sunnyville, and you're like, oh, this place is terrible, right? It is Fair Havens. It's like the worst place around. Notice again, though, in verse 7, I want you to see this. It says, we sailed slowly and with much difficulty. Verse 8, we coasted along with difficulty. I want you to see that's the kind of characteristic. Nothing is working in their favor. There is a great temptation in these kind of situations to say, you know what, why even try? If nothing's working out. Everything seems to be against us. Maybe we should just jump ship. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship more than to what Paul said, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, 
the majority decided to put out to sea from there on a chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, the, in verse 9, it mentions a fast. The fast being mentioned there is the Day of Atonement, which happens in October. And so in other words, what's happening is they've gotten into the latter part of the year when it's not safe to be sailing on the sea. And so Paul gives his advice. He says, we shouldn't be doing this, guys. This is not going to end well. This isn't good. I don't think we should go. But again, no one listens to Paul's advice. They totally ignore his advice. And you think about it, why should they listen to his advice? I mean, who is this guy? He's a preacher, right? They're sailors. They're professionals. They do this all the time. Why should they listen to what the preacher has to say? Well, Paul actually knew more about sailing than they probably gave him credit for. Because during his time as a missionary, we we know that Paul sailed a lot on the sea. Uh, He traveled by boat a lot. In fact, in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, at one point he says that he had been in three different shipwrecks, and in one of them he spent a night and a day on the open sea, like Titanic style, like holding on to a piece of wood and hoping that you don't get hypothermia. Paul's been there before. He's crashed before. He knows what it's like to get into shipwreck. And he says, guys, I don't think that we should be doing this. But again, they don't take Paul's advice. They decide we're going to push on a little further and see if we can make it to this other port. Now, how many of you can relate to Paul in this case, right? He knows what he's talking about, but they just blow him off. They just write him off. They ignore his advice. And there can be in those times a temptation to say, you know what? If you don't want to listen to what I have to say, if you're just going to write me off, I don't think what, this, what you're doing here, this is not a good idea. I don't think this is what we should be doing. You know what? Maybe I should just leave. Maybe I should just jump ship and bail out. This isn't going the way I want it to, so I'm out of here. But again, that's not what Paul did. Now let's continue from verse 13. Now when the south wind blew softly, doesn't that sound romantic? Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. Now when the south wind blew gently, see what's happening here is saying that finally things started to look like they were working in their favor and they said, hey, look, everything seems to be saying that we should go, so let's go. But verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. Now a nor'easter is basically a hurricane that happens on the Mediterranean Sea. So just when it seemed like things were starting to work in their favor, here comes this hurricane. Verse 15, we read this. When the ship was caught and would not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Uh, this boat that they're talking about here, this is kind of a dinghy or a, a life raft or a lifeboat that they would drag behind the boat, uh, drag behind the bigger ship in case they needed to use it to get to shore. And in the event of a storm, what they would do is they would pull it in with this rope and they would kind of fasten it on the stern or as I like to call it, the back of the boat because I have, I, I don't even know any of these nautical terms. So the back of the boat, they put the, uh, the dinghy, the lifeboat on the back of the boat. Verse 17. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of us being saved was lost and abandoned. 
Now just think about this scene. Picture the scene in your mind. It's stormy. It's scary. You're just being driven along by the sea. You've, you've stopped, you know, directing the boat at this point. You're just kind of like, okay, wherever the storm wants to take us, you can't see the sky. You have no idea where you're at. It's raining hard on you for days without end. You have no GPS. You have no radio to call for help. There's no Coast Guard to come and help you. There's nothing. You're absolutely helpless. Verse 21. Since they had been for a long time without food, Paul stood among them and he said this, Men, you should have listened to me. Great. That's, you know, that's the uh, I told you so type of thing. I told you we shouldn't have let, uh, set sail from Crete. We wouldn't have incurred this injury and loss. Verse 22. Now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I was told. But we must run aground on some island. These people are told that they can be sure they are not going to die. Paul tells them, they're they're all ready to die. Paul says, no, God spoke to me and he told me, we're all going to survive. Everything's going to be lost, but we're all going to make it through. Now, this was a message of hope. This is a message of hope from God. And these people uh, who had formerly ignored what Paul had to say, now they're coming to grips with the fact that they're about to die. And in that moment, they now are more open to hearing what Paul has to say. And so Paul uses this opportunity to share with them a message of hope from God. You know, it's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes. That's kind of the situation, too. When you're about to crash and die, you start being more open to thinking about God. You know, I wonder, do we, do you have a message of hope that you could share with a person who is being tossed by the storms of life and isn't sure that they're going to make it? As Christians, we have the greatest message of hope that the world has ever known. It is a message of hope which goes beyond death. And I would encourage you, make sure that you know that message. Make sure it's, it's embedded in your heart and in your mind. First of all, for yourself, but also for the people around you who need to hear it. But see, Paul, he never would have had this opportunity to speak to these men about this hope that he has if he hadn't gone through the storm himself. He never would have had this opportunity to share with these people the message of hope from God if he had jumped ship because things weren't going the way that he had wanted them to go. Let's continue verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they sounded again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that they might run run aground on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and they prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors for the bow... Paul said to the centurion and the the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So the waters have calmed down a little bit. They don't know exactly where they are, but they're worried about running aground because there was this thing which mentioned here called the Sirtis. And what the Sirtis is, it's a big sandbar in the Mediterranean. And it's kind of like the Bermuda Triangle, right? It's like a graveyard for ships and vessels on the sea. And so they're worried about running into it. So they start taking these soundings. They realize they're getting, you know, the 
there's, they're getting near some kind of land or something. And so the soldiers, or sorry, the sailors, they get together and they come up with a plan. There's only one lifeboat, that dinghy, which they attached to the back of the boat earlier. Now, there are 276 people, we read at the end of the chapter, on this boat. But you can only fit like 10, 20 people in the lifeboat. So what are you going to do? Well, these sailors say, you know what? Forget these other guys. Let's, let's get our sailors together and we're just going to pretend like we're working on the boat, but in reality, we're going to drop the lifeboat and we're going to get out of here and we're going to be safe, but I don't know about those other guys. They're, they'll be on their own. But see, that's a problem, right? Because if they are the ones who know how to run the boat, they know how to take the soundings, they know how to navigate the boat, they're just going to leave everybody else kind of on their own. Everybody else is going to be in trouble. So Paul tells the soldiers, look, if those sailors leave, we're all going to die. Don't let them do that or we will die. And so the soldiers cut away the lifeboat so that no one can use it, so they're in this together. Now let's read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll make our application. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Now from verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, let them into the sea, and at the same time loosened the ropes that tied the rudders, and then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan, and he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, the rest on planks or in pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. So just as God said would happen in the vision, everyone survived. That word that the Lord gave to Paul gave him so much confidence in the midst of that storm, didn't it? And let me tell you what, the same is true for you and for me. We are able to have an incredible confidence no matter what storms await us in this life if we know what we, that we will indeed reach our final destination. That is the promise of the gospel, that because of what Jesus did for us, we have God's promise that we will indeed get to our destination. And to know that... It gives you an incredible confidence. It gives you an incredible boldness as you navigate this life. But let me point out something to you here. Still on this topic of jumping ship, did you notice that there's kind of an apparent, almost like an apparent contradiction here in what happens, right? On the one hand, Paul says at the beginning, I had this vision. God spoke to me. We're all going to survive. None of us are going to die. And then, a little bit later, some of the sailors try to escape with the boat, and Paul says, if you don't stay, we're all going to die, right? So you kind of wonder, well, which is it, right? So do you see the problem? God has spoken. Nobody's going to die. It's absolutely certain. I know it will happen. And yet he sees the sailors leaving and he says, unless those guys stay, we're all going to die. So which one is it, right? Is it that God is in charge, that God has determined beforehand that everyone's going to live? If so, well, then who cares if those guys leave? Let them go, you know? It's already been determined. It's set in stone. You're not going to change what God already decided. It's either one or the other, right? It's either that God's in control, in which case, 
what we do doesn't really matter. Our choices, these people's choices, don't matter. Or if our choices do matter, then it would seem that God is somehow limited, that he's kind of just making it up as he goes along, that he's not really in control. So which one is it? Well, what Paul is saying here, and what the Bible teaches throughout, is that it's not one or the other. It's actually both. It's both. So God is sovereign. God determines things. He's in control of everything. And yet, our choices matter greatly. Our choices have consequences. We're responsible for what we do. It's both at the same time. Now, we tend to think that it's either or. But God says, no, it's both and. And so you might say, okay, so it's both and. So what is it? Is it like 50-50? Like 50% God's determined purpose and 50% what I choose to do? Or is it more like 80-20? Like mostly God's in control, but there's that 20%, there's that margin where I got some uh, wiggle room. Now what Paul's saying here is this. What the Bible teaches is no, it's not 50-50, it's not 80-20, it's 100-100. God is 100% in charge and you are 100% responsible for what you do. How does that work? Well, you actually see examples of this throughout the entire Bible. Let me give you one here from the book of Acts, which I think is really uh, one of the most poignant ones. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is speaking to a crowd on Pentecost. This is Peter's first sermon that he gives, and he says this phrase. He says, This Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was God's plan from the beginning, that Jesus would die on the cross for the sins of the world. But then he says, and you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So was Jesus' death on the cross planned and ordained by God? Of course. From the beginning of time, God had determined that this had to happen in order for us to be saved. God made sure that it did happen. But yet the people who did it, the people who beat Jesus, who killed Jesus, what they did was absolutely wicked. It was wrong. It was bad. It was evil. It was lawless. But, but it had to happen, right? Yes. But, but uh, they were being used by God in a sense, weren't they? Yes. This was God's plan. It had to happen. Yes, but it was still their choice. See, God ordains exactly what has to happen through our choices, which are indeed our choices, which we are responsible for. So it's not 50-50, it's not 80-20, it's actually 100-100. And what that means is this, what you do absolutely matters. What you do matters very much. There are consequences for your actions. They are important, but at the same time, God has a plan. Things don't just happen randomly. God's in control. And, and these two truths are simultaneously true. Paul says this. He, he looks at this and he understands this. And I want you to see how that understanding, that these two truths are simultaneously true, how that affects his actions. Look at what it does. First of all, he's not passive at all. He, he's leading. He's telling people what they need to do to survive. Don't do that, right? But yet he's calm. So he's not passive. He's active, but yet he's calm. He has peace even in the midst of a storm. You see, if everything is predetermined and we're just walking it out, right, like our actions don't actually matter at all, then what does that do to you? It makes you passive. It makes you perhaps cynical, because who cares? What I do doesn't matter anyway, so why bother? William Carey is known as the father of the modern missionary movement. At the 
uh, you know, in the 1790s, William Carey left for India, and he translated the Bible into several languages. He paved the way for a movement of missionaries that would come after him that has literally changed the world. If you want to know how much it's changed the world, consider this, that in the past 200 years, Africa has gone from 5% Christian to over 50% Christian, one of the highest percentages of Christians in the world. And that, that is due to the modern missionary movement over the past 200 years. So when William Carey, though, what's interesting about his story, when he first approached the governing board of his denomination and he petitioned them to start a missionary movement, to start sending missionaries to the rest of the world, here's what he was told. This is a quote from the commissioner of their, uh, their denomination. He said, quote, Sit down, young man. You are an enthusiast. When God chooses to convert those people, he'll do it without consulting me or you. That's very different sentiment, isn't it, than what Jesus said, where he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and whoever believes will be saved. It's a very different sentiment. You see, if you believe that everything is predetermined and that your actions don't actually matter, then you'll be passive, you'll be indifferent. But if, on the other hand, you believe that it's all up to you, that the weight of the world is on your shoulders, that all depends on you, well, then, of course, you'll be stressed. Paul understands it's not either or, it's, it's both and. And that's why he takes action. He's not passive, but yet he's completely calm. He's totally at peace in the midst of the storm because he understands what I do matters greatly, but yet God is in complete control. God is in control. Nobody's going to die, but yet don't let those guys go or else we're all going to die. So maybe you can relate to Paul and the other people in this story. You know, what happens is when temptation, uh, when storms come in our lives, there is this temptation that arises within us to bail out, to jump ship. You can find yourself saying, maybe I should just jump ship. I, I can't take this marriage anymore. I can't take this family a day longer. I can't take this job anymore. I think I'm going to just bail. Maybe you look at your husband and you say, he's not the man that I thought he would be when I married him. Maybe you look at your wife and you say, you know what, she's changed. She's not someone that I'm passionate about like I once was. Maybe it's another area of your life where you're tempted to jump ship or bail on some commitment that you've made. Maybe like the guys in this story, you've even, con you've even started lowering the lifeboat to the water because you're thinking about it, you're making plans to actually do it. Let me encourage you that your actions matter greatly. God has a plan, though. He has a plan to see you through the storm, so don't jump ship. Rather, like they did in this story, cut away the lifeboats, get rid of the contingency plan, let them go. God has a plan, and your actions matter very much, so do the right things, and yet rest in the knowledge that God is in control. That, that's our first one, jumping ship. Now let's move on to our, our second point here, which is this. Why is this happening? Why does God allow storms? Why does he send storms? Think about this, continuing with this metaphor of a storm at sea. If you're in a boat and, and a storm comes and, and you're able to keep a hold of the rudder, then when the storm is over, you'll actually be a lot closer to your destination than you ever would have been if that storm hadn't happened. In other words, that storm will move you forward more quickly than you could have ever otherwise. If you can survive the storm, you'll be better off for having gone through it. Throughout the Bible, you can see some of the different things that God accomplished through storms. 
For example, when Jonah was running away from God, God sent a storm to turn him around. He was doing something that he shouldn't have been doing, and God used a storm to turn his life around and, and bring him back to him and what he was supposed to be doing. Now, when the disciples of Jesus were on the Sea of Galilee, God used a storm to teach them an important lesson about who Jesus was, and that caused them to grow in their faith and in their trust in Jesus' power and his care for them. And here in Acts 27, God uses a storm in order to work in the lives of many people. First of all, the people in the boat with Paul, he brings them to a place where they are open to hearing what Paul has to say about God. But also, this island that they land on, we are going to find out in the next chapter, it was actually the island of Malta. And we're going to see next week that Paul's sufferings open up an opportunity for him to share the hope of the gospel with the people on Malta. So God used suffering in that way too. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what the exact purposes of the storms in your life are going to be, but I can assure you of this. Ultimately, it is for good. Ultimately, all the storms in your life and in my life, ultimately, they are for good. And that's a radical thing to wrap your mind around. Think about that. Now, how do I know that? Well, because that's what the Bible teaches. I'll give you some examples. Think about the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, and he was his father's favorite son. And his father treated him better than he treated any of his brothers. And that favoritism that was shown to Joseph, it caused a lot of problems in his family, as you can imagine. It caused his brothers to become absolutely resentful against Joseph. And so when they got the chance, when they were in a desert place, away from civilization, nobody could see what was going on, they, they ambushed Joseph, they attacked him, they beat him, and they put him in a pit, and they were going to kill him. But they decided to sell him into slavery in Egypt. Now I know that siblings don't always get along, but that's pretty extreme, right? Like selling your brother into slavery. So Joseph gets taken to Egypt as a slave. And if that weren't enough, while he's a slave, he actually gets accused of a crime falsely because this woman accuses him uh, for something he didn't do. And, and so he goes to prison and he's in prison for years. Now think about how much lower can you actually get? First of all, you're a slave. And if that's not bad enough, now you're in jail. And he stays in jail for years. But here's what happens. Because he's in Egypt, because he's in prison, he ends up being in this position where he's able to single-handedly save the lives of thousands of people from a famine, including his own life, including his family, including the entire Jewish nation from which one day will come Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In other words, if he hadn't been sold into slavery... He would never have been in a position to do that. If he hadn't ended up in prison, even though it was unjust, he never would have been in a position to do that. If all of these things hadn't happened to him, presumably he and his family would have starved to death, the Jewish nation would have died out, and God's plan of redemption to bring a Savior and a Messiah through this nation would have been extinguished. And yet in the end, Joseph is able to look at his brothers and he tells them this, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and for the saving of many. You know, that's the same thing that Paul says in Romans 8, 28, where he says, All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Notice there, it doesn't say that all things are good if you just look at them from the right perspective. No, not all things are good. Some things are bad. Some things are terrible. Some things should not be. But the promise of the Bible is this. That God, in his foreknowledge, in his sovereignty, has planned and written history in such a way that even evil will backfire and will ultimately accomplish 
the good that God desires. In other words, he's working all things together so that in the end, even the bad things will end up accomplishing something very good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So why do storms happen? Why does God allow them? Because on the one hand, we live in a broken world where people sin, people hurt each other, bad things happen, people make bad choices, and yet on the other hand, God is absolutely sovereign. He is working all things together for good according to his purpose. But then the question would be this, right? If God uses storms in our lives, as we see these different examples of it, how can we be sure that when we face storms in our lives, that we'll do it right, that we'll get it, that we'll, we'll, be in the, uh, we'll get it right when God sends the storms in our lives and we'll learn the things he wants us to learn and things will go the way they're supposed to go? And that brings us to our final point, and that is the personal pronouns. In the midst of the story, Paul tells these these, these 200 people there, as they're going through this storm together, he says this, This very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong stood by me. The God to whom I belong. Martin Luther said this, he said, The sweetness of the gospel lies in the pronouns. Think about that. The sweetness of the gospel lies in the pronouns. Me, my, thy, Jesus Christ, my Lord, who loved me and gave himself for me. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. You see, the sweetness of the gospel lies in the pronouns. He says, the angel of the God whom I serve, whom I be, to whom I belong, stood by me. That's covenant language. That's the language of intimate relationship. You don't say, my Bobby or my Jill, unless that's a person you have an intimate relationship with, unless that's your spouse or your son or your daughter. Personal possessives. You see, that's what happens when God is no longer just God, but he is my God. And, and I become his, as Paul says, the God to whom I belong. So I was reading a, a post on Facebook this week from some friends of mine, uh, a couple, and the husband, you know, there was like a picture or something, and he wrote this caption and said, she's mine. And you know what uh, the wife said? What do you think she said? Do you think she said, you don't own me? How dare you say that you own me, that I'm yours in some sense, right? I'm my own person. You don't own me. I don't belong to you. No, of course that's not what she said. Her response was, yes, I am yours and you are mine. You see, that is the language of love. That's the language of covenant relationship that revels in the fact of giving yourself to another person and them giving themselves to you, that you are theirs and they are yours. And that's the kind of relationship that God calls us into, not a consumer relationship, which is based on what can you do for me? What can you give to me? But a covenant relationship is one in which you give yourselves to each other. So let me ask you, do you have that kind of relationship with God? Where you can say like Paul did, He is my God to whom I belong with all that I am. I am not my own, I belong to Him and He is my God. If you do have that kind of relationship with God, I'll tell you what happens. You will not make the mistakes that people commonly make when storms come into their lives and they say, well, why is this happening to me? Surely it must be that God is punishing me or that God has abandoned me. Obviously, God doesn't care about what's happening to me. No, Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't go that place. 
He's able to say in the midst of the storm, My God to whom I belong. I am his and he is mine. And therefore I know that whatever is happening to me right now, it isn't that God has abandoned me. It isn't that God is punishing me. But he is with me and he loves me. He's committed to me. And therefore, what is, why is this happening to me? It must be that God has a purpose with this storm. And even though this situation is bad, God's purpose is to use it for good. How can you be sure of that? How can you be sure that God really does care about you like this? That he really is this committed to you? I'll tell you how. You look to the cross. You look to Jesus. You look and you see what Jesus did for you. On the cross, Jesus took the ultimate storm of God's wrath in your place. You are the one who deserved it because each of us, we've sinned, we've fallen short, but Jesus took that storm, that storm of punishment from God in our place so that we could have life and forgiveness, so that we could be made right with God. You can be assured of God's love for you because Jesus didn't jump ship. Jesus didn't bail out. On the cross, Jesus was abandoned by the Father so that you could be accepted into that covenant relationship. He took the punishment that our sins deserved. And therefore, when storms arise in my life, in your life, we can know that they aren't punishment, that they aren't God abandoning us because that already happened. Jesus already went there. Rather, those storms are being used by a loving God for good, and he will see you through. Amen? Would you please stand with me, and let's pray. And I'd like to invite you today, if there are any of you who would, here who would say this, you know, you talk about this idea of covenant relationship with God. I don't have that kind of relationship with God that you described. I, I can't say like Paul did, that he is my God to whom I belong. Well, I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that today. So we're going to pray, and then I'll lead you in a prayer at the end. Lord, we thank you for this truth of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that we can have this relationship with you because of what Jesus did, where we can know that the difficulties that happen in our lives, Lord, that you are absolutely in control and that you will use all of it for good. Thank you for this, Lord. And I pray for all of us today that we would have that kind of covenant relationship that Paul had with you where he was able to say, my God to whom I belong, I am his and he is mine. Right now, Lord, I pray for anybody here with us today who would say, you know what, I want that. I know it's good, I know it's right, and I desire it, but I don't think I'm there yet, but I want to be there. Lord, I pray for those people here today, people hearing this later, Lord, who would say, that's me. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to that place today of surrender, that they would say in their heart, yes, Lord, I receive your grace, I receive your forgiveness, I receive the new life, and I pray that, Lord, you would... Come into me, make me new, give me new life. In Jesus' name, we pray that in your name, Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.